This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Investigators continued to look at what caused that crash of a Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet in Ethiopia. It was the second deadly crash of that type of plane in the last five months, and there were similarities between Sunday's crash and the Lion Air one in Indonesia back in October. Boeing is under intense pressure right now as 371 MAX aircraft are grounded at various locations around the world. Its stock has dropped as well, its reputation is at stake, and it's facing unknown costs. The company has temporarily stopped the Delivery of these planes, a move that will likely cost it $1.8 billion in the first fiscal quarter. However, it continues to build those planes. Boeing and the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration are currently working on a software update designed to make planes safer. That is expected, though, to be done in April. However, carriers like Southwest and American Airlines are, uh, and others are dealing with a smaller usable fleet, and some airlines say that they're going to ask Boeing for reimbursements of the money that they are losing. So how does the company handle this and rebuild the reputation? of its best-selling jet. We're joined in studio by Bob Meyer, Wharton professor and co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center here at Wharton. Also joining us on the phone, John Strong, professor of finance and economics at the College of William and Mary, and Clinton Oster, professor emeritus in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Bob, great seeing you. Morning. Thank you. John, Clint, thank you for coming back on the show. Great to have you both. Great. Our pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so I guess give us your sense right now, John, of of where Boeing is right now as a company, as they obviously are trying to make these fixes, uh, but obviously there are a lot of economic elements at play here as well. I think there are. Um, I think you're exactly right. The, the, the pressure to think about how to solve the, the immediate problem of, of what's going wrong, what is going wrong, and, and um, what... Uh, uh, remedies are required and how long that will take is becoming a bigger and bigger question. You know, it's clear that the discussions that Boeing has had already with updates to the, to the software systems, changes in pilot displays, changes in operations manuals, and, and additional crew training is something that will take months to roll out across this fleet. Um, and, and the fact that there are almost 600 deliveries scheduled for 2019 means that Boeing um, uh, has a, a, a major delay um, and major cash flow uh, considerations facing it um, in, in that regard. And I think that's particularly important because a lot of these planes will be coming into service just during the peak summer travel season. Clint, your thoughts? Well, I think that, that we, we want to keep in mind that we really don't know what happened with those two crashes yet. Uh, and and that means that, that that Boeing really doesn't have as much information from the from the crash records as they would like to see whether there are common underlying problems. As John pointed out, they're doing some software updates. Those were planned uh, before and are and are ongoing. And that's not particularly unusual with a new aircraft. But I think that that it'll be quite interesting to see what the the complete accident investigation studies show in terms of were there commonalities between the two flights to what extent were various components on the boeing aircraft uh, associated with these accidents right and, and and bob obviously part of this i think goes to the recent comments by the current faa administrator about the fact that when they first look at this uh, at this crash, they were looking at the first three minutes of the flight, and then a couple of days later, they received 
a, a deeper dive into this entire crash, and they made this move. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I'm sort of thinking about uh, you know the, the broader question: what's the impact of Boeing and so forth? And, and um, I think I think what Boeing certainly hopes is that, that this thing is uh, uh, resolved pretty quickly in terms yeah. of, and moreover, that it's a very very specific type of fix that uh, everyone can kind of understand and kind of move on. Uh, I mean, uh, one immediately thinks back to the last time there was sort of a, a, a flaw in an aircraft which caused a, a wide systematic shutdown. That would have been in 1979 with. Uh, the DC-10 and on AA-191. Uh, and that was a situation where at least it was such a, in some sense, it was a much more dramatic and much more visible type of disaster, which basically caused the planes to go down. But in that case, they can kind of pinpoint it to a very, very specific uh, maintenance problem, which right. we were able to re- remedy. And then afterwards, even though there was a short-term hit, uh, the aircraft continued to go on for a long life of service. And I think from Boeing's perspective, they kind of hoped that. Uh, I think the worry here is that this is something which you it's, it ends up being a thing where they can't ever quite figure out what happened, and right. they don't really know what it is to fix. And it's a it's a very low probability event that might happen at any time, and um, um, you know, it, and so forth. And, and, and John, obviously, the numbers of planes that they already have rolled out, but as Clinton mentioned, the number of planes that they were set to roll out in the month of, or I should say, in 2019, uh, that makes this a, an incredibly popular plane right now. But it also makes it an incredibly important economic component to uh, to how Boeing is run, but also all of these different airlines. And I mentioned uh, in the news headlines is the fact that Air Canada is now not going to give guidance for 2019 because of this fact. Yes, you know, right now uh, the, the fleet of, of 737 MAXs that are in service represent about 1% of global flights. But the, the numbers that are due for delivery, you know, to go from 371 to add another, add another 579 deliveries, that's, a, that's worth $32 billion in revenue to Boeing. And, and um, it's, it represents um, a, a big potential risk in terms of liquidity and um, uh, carrying cash flow if you're, if you're pushing this out, you know, 6, 9, 12 you know, uh, 12 months into the future. And so and remember, the, the thing about about whatever this fix is, as Bob points out, if we're not really sure, then and we're going to have lots of implications about, you know, software updates, training, operations manuals, and so on. So the implementation of any kind of remedy um, is likely to be longer and and be more measured than um, the mechanical problems that Bob referred to just a couple minutes ago. Bob? Yeah, I, I also kind of worry a little bit that if the solution is uh, here's sort of an inherent flaw that uh, that this is a thing which basically could occur, you know, uh, once every 10,000 uh, takeoffs or something like that, and then the training is just basically, uh, look, if you're one of if you're a pilot and you and this happens, okay, this is what you should do. That's just is very very difficult to practice for that, and if you're in a panic situation when the flight is just taking off. Um, I don't care how many hours of flight of uh, flight experience a pilot has. It's just very you immediately move into what we call system one processing, where you're just on on auto reflex, and right. it's very very difficult to all of a sudden remember that little clause that was in some manual that that you got some um, while back, and, ba- and 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 it's going to be it's not a very reassuring fix. Uh, Clinton, in terms of of kind of the production model that that Boeing has in place for this aircraft and their production 
construction model in general for all of their aircrafts and I guess air, uh, airline manufacturers in general. How quick is this process? Of, uh, and again, 52, 53 planes a month. That would seem like that's a lot. It, it, it's hard to know even when they get a chance to get started. Um, I mean, it's, it's likely on the, the, the most recent crash, it's probably going to be a month before they really have had a chance to look at the, the information. And even that will be only a preliminary one. Um, so, so they've got that sort of a problem. If it's a, a software uh, sort of update, that could be done pretty quickly. Uh, and, and updating the manuals could be done pretty quickly. Although, as John pointed out, the, that then has to roll through. The pilots have to be uh, get some additional training in that sort of thing. If it turns out to be a mechanical uh, issue, um, then that makes life a lot more complicated because then you've got to go back in and actually physically change some parts of the aircraft. But uh, and, and at this point, we we just don't know. Well, you know, I, I would would point out though that that as Southwest points out, they've already flown this plane for over forty thousand flights and they haven't right. had any trouble. Right. Uh, so. So it's just it's just really hard to know what we're going to find. And, and I guess the other part to it is also is you mentioned about the training of the pilots. But if there was some sort of issue with the pilots themselves in in terms of the takeoff and the process that that you have with that plane, we need to find that out as well. Correct, Lynn? Well, that's right. And and you know, I mean, John and I had done some work on on international uh, safety, running up through the accidents through the 2006 period, and. And, and if you look at the, the segment of, of travel, international scheduled, which is where everybody is pretty much the safest, Africa, the region of one of the airlines, had a safety record eight times worse than North America. Southeast Asia had a safety record three and a half times worse. So there are some other things going on in these places, potentially related to pilot training, potentially related to maintenance issues, um, that, that, again, are in the background of all of this. John? Um, yeah, I think that's I, I think that's right. Although, you know, I would say that uh, you know the the given that this is a new plane and um, just being rolled out, you know, I think that the onus is is largely on the civil aviation authorities and on Boeing um, working in concert with the airlines to to get this sorted out. Bob. Um, yeah, I, I think that, and also, I, you can think about the fact that, you know, Southwest has never had a problem, and, and the, the extreme rarity of, the, of these things, and it might well be uh, that I think it's all about sort of maintaining um, of the you know, a PR angle in terms of it's really important for American Airlines and all the airlines to basically, uh, uh, to come across as being that we care a lot about this, and, and, and I think from the, the public's perspective, all of a sudden, there, there is actually a very, very low risk of, of these, uh, with respect to these aircraft, but the perception of it, of is something quite different, and so in some sense, a lot of it is also um, how do you manage this vis-a-vis uh, the traveler and making mm-hmm. sure that when they get on a plane, they're not suddenly asking uh, what kind of a craft is this? So I don't want to get on this, and you know, is it am I taking a roll of the dice when I book a flight? And I think that was part of the question, at least in the early point after right. the crash, that probably a lot of travelers who were moving around the United States were literally asking that question and had some concerns and whether or not the, that the airlines were going to have to give. Uh, give funding back yeah absolutely absolutely yeah this is this continues to this is um a plane that for quite some time now two decades has really been the workhorse of american aviation of the 737 and all its variant forms and these are typically planes that are flying five six seven 
play today um, and are being operated, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day. And, and these are these are the workhorses of the fleet. So for, for this to be, for this latest version, which is the replacing a lot of the older versions, um, th- this is really a, f- a flagship product both for Boeing and, and for, for the U.S. airline industry. What, Clint, what about the role of the FAA as we move forward in, in this? And obviously part of this is going to be the investigation by the NTSB, uh, what exactly occurred of this, but, but what role does the FAA play in this process? Well, I think that, the, I mean, the FAA has, has typically been as a, uh, an agency that from a safety standpoint is, is driven by evidence and data. Um, and that was their the argument as to why they did the grounding, that there was some data that, that was suggestive, that there was a potential problem. Uh, it, it, it'll be a real challenge, I think, for them once there's more information on what was really going on and once Boeing, to the extent that they're making changes and making fixes, they then have to decide, is this good enough? Um, and and I think the, the, the problem you're going to run into is that it may well be good enough from the, the perspective that they've always used in the past, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of public pressure. There are a lot of politicians sounding off. Um, it, it's, it's happening in a perhaps more political environment than aviation safety has happened in in the past, and I think that'll be a challenge for FAA. Bob? Yeah, I, I guess it's in, another way of thinking about it is, is also it's sort of this is sort of the peak hot period with this, with certainly with respect to public perceptions. And sort of I'm thinking through, you know, you made the really the good point is what constitutes a fix, and uh, right. and you're never going to get it down to absolutely zero chance of anything ever going wrong with these things. And I, I think it's sort of a question of of doing what you can right now, very visibly to indicate that we're doing what we can to fix it. And then what's naturally going to happen, um, maybe for better or worse is, is that memories are fairly quick to fade. And um, we think about sort of past airline disasters where there's been some flaw either in training or flaw, flaws in the, I'm thinking of the Air France crash, for example, where there was some design issues that were involved. Uh, the reality is, is sort of the, the, the plane sort of continues on and people kind of have short memories. And they, there's just, I think, such there's such dependence on aircraft and there's such inherent trust that somehow or another that they're going to get safely from here to there. I think people are, are would like this to go away. Um, so they have uh, the Boeing and the airlines sort of have that going for them, that public d- do not want to, to be fearful of flying. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, joined in studio by Bob Meyer of the Wharton School, and on the phone by John Strong of the College of William & Mary, Clinton Oster of Indiana University. Your comments welcome as we talk about the uh, the uh, grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX planes here in the United States and in other parts of the world. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I also, John, want to talk about the component of Canada in this conversation because they made the call a little bit earlier than the United States to ground these planes. Uh, and as I mentioned again at the top, uh, the fact that uh, that Air Canada has decided that they are going to suspend their guidance for this year because of the impact that they potentially believe this is going to ha- have on their service during 2019. Right. I think um, I, I think that the, the current fleet sizes in the U.S., the only U.S. airline that, that has um, a scale um, of, of operations with the 737 MAX is, is Southwest, and I think that would be the one airline I would look at for yeah. um, some additional um, guidance about the effect on, on them get going forward. 
the other the point that you raise about Canada acting first is an important one because I think I, I think one of the things that will come from this whole experience is that the civil aviation authorities around the world um, have acted sort of independently and may come to decisions at different points and in different ways and and I think one of the things that will come is a is a, a revisiting of how do how are the civil aviation authorities around the world going to work together to make sure that we're thinking about safety in a in a consistent way um in in ways that kind of bring everybody on board historically Canada the UK and the US have taken the lead on matters like this um and and now there are other voices around the world that are saying I'm not really sure that that we have the same way to think about this so I think this will also engender a, a rethinking about uh, aviation safety oversight and regulation worldwide. Bob? Um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, I think one of the interesting things here is that, as you indicated, sort of this lack of coordination in terms of uh, calling things down. And, yeah. and I think it, it ends up being the case that all you need, and it, let's say so it's a case that, that, in fact, it was a highly localized thing. It is due to uh, training in, in Africa. Um, uh, and such that U.S. planes are actually uh, flying this aircraft are actually totally safe. Uh, but here you have a situation where all of a sudden, you know, China basically said, you know, uh, China or England says we're not going to support uh, uh, support this aircraft. And basically, just because of that move, then the U.S. feels compelled to do it in a way which is uh, taking an action which maybe is not necess- not necessary. So in some sense, the the ability to kind of get uh, much greater coordination and how these decisions are made it seems essential. But Clinton, uh, obviously, we have these two crashes that we're talking about, but in terms of this plane itself, and as you mentioned before, it has really kind of been a workhorse in terms of the U.S. airline industry, but have there been other instances, whether it be small whatever, uh, of issues with flying the the MAX 737? Well, I've seen a couple of of reports in the media that there were some comments about uh, about this plane in the the, what's called the ASRS database, which is essentially an anonymous way of of people to pilots and others to to point out safety problems. The 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 problem with that is it's really hard to know what to make of it. If you look at that at that database and start reading through it, you can find just about anything you want to find in it. Um, and and we had a, at one point considered whether we could use that as as uh, information in our research and decided that that we simply couldn't. So I don't know that that we've seen uh, a lot. The, and and the other thing is that that if you look at, at you know what pilots are trained to do, uh, even with the, the updates and the like from the very beginning, what they were trained to do was if you get some of these sort of what what are known as uncommanded stabilizer trim movements, where basically the thing's going around on its own, the the flight manual says turn the system off. Uh, they didn't do that in in Indonesia. Uh, we don't know if they did that in in Ethiopia, um, but but uh, that's where some of the pilot training may may come back in. And, and how difficult or easy is it to do that in, in these particular planes? You know, Glenn. I don't know. My impression is it's a simple uh, flip of a switch. But I'm not a pilot, and I've not been in the cockpit of of this particular aircraft. Bob. 
Yeah, and this is a point I, made, I raised earlier. I mean, that the training issue is that it's very difficult to control. It could well be that U.S. pilots are trained uh, um, w- with this sort of thing a lot more than than other pilots in other parts of the world. And uh, but it is certainly the case that if it's a very very rare event that just doesn't come out too often, um, it's uh, it, it it seems in hindsight, well, gee, it's just a switch. Why don't you just turn off the switch? Sure. Well, well basically, it, it's on almost every air crash that's involved some sort of pilot error has had that feature to it, where you in hindsight, you look back at it and say, you know, like in Air France, just point the, the nose of the plane down and you would have gotten out of the stall. And somehow or another, it just never occurred to a group of three pilots that that was sort of the fix to it and um, and so forth and going back in time. So in some sense, it's very, very difficult to, uh, 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 to sort of second guess pilots. And I think that's one of the real challenges in training. How do you train people um, who are in this uh, hot state of mind where they're just, in some sense, they're panicking and they don't know what right. goes on. And all of a sudden, and everything that they were trained to do goes out the window. But, John, I guess the, the, the actual training itself becomes a question. Whatever this fix would be for this aircraft, as you all have kind of alluded to, uh, it is going to take a, a certain level of retraining so that all of these pilots make sure that they know what's going on. And I guess it would almost be incumbent on Boeing themselves to make sure that this training goes well, to make sure that we don't have potentially instances like this again. Yeah, it's up. That's absolutely right. And, and the question really becomes, you know, how quickly could um, simulator uh, programs be designed and built for these scenarios and rolled out across the, the, the training platforms worldwide? Um, and so, so, you know, I think this is, this is not something that you can fix in a matter of, of, you know, days to weeks. I think this is a weeks to months um, uh, at, the, at best. So, Clint, that means that we're going to be seeing this as an impact on, on all kinds of airlines, including you in the U.S., for the foreseeable future. I think that's right. I mean, it's, it, it, as John pointed out, the, this, this plane is only about 1% of the fleet worldwide, and, and it is a bigger chunk of the fleet, about 5% of the fleet for Southwest. They had planned to make it a bigger chunk. Uh, but uh, so, so they're going to have to be adjusting, as is American, and to a lesser extent United, on bringing some planes back into service that had previously been taken out. And, and they can do that, but it will take a while. Uh, and so we're not going to see huge disruptions, right. but we will see disruptions for a while, uh, at least a, you know, a matter of a week or so until they can make their uh, their adjustments. Wow. Yeah, and the point I made earlier is I, is I do think that people really depend on flying so much, and no one wants to be afraid of flying. Right. Uh, and and I think that the uh, that the public certainly is, they have that going with them, uh, with them in the sense that their public is hoping that this is solved, and they're kind of looking and waiting for the airlines or Boeing to come in and say, look, the problem has been fixed, there's been new training, and they don't want to know the details of what that training is, but they're just like to, and to some degree, put their heads in the sand a little bit uh, because we're so all dependent upon flying and we, we want to feel safe when we're going. And so the more that they can do, first of all, doing a, um, a, the real fixes that are needed, and right. then secondly, doing an effective job of communicating to the public that, look, we've got it taken care of. Gentlemen, thank you all for your time today. Bob, great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. John Clinton, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Bob Meyer from here at the Wharton School, John Strong at the College of William and Mary, and Clint Oster at Indiana University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.